This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Today we are in conversation with Prof. Mahdi on the coronavirus in South Africa and how the vaccine is coming. Sabir Mahadi is a professor of vaccinology in the School of Pathology at the University of the Witwatersrand and a director of the world-renowned Medical Research Council Vaccines and Infectious Disease Analytics Research Unit, a National Research Foundation A-rated scientist. Thank you so much, Prof, for joining us here on the COVID Report. What changes did you have to make to adapt to the COVID-19 virus? Uh, so certainly the past uh, five, six months has been sort of a whirlwind in terms of the activities within my own research unit. Uh, rather than going into a lockdown, uh, in fact, the activities within the research unit probably increased at least fivefold. Uh, across the breadth of the different activities that we're involved in, uh, both in relation to working around vaccine studies, in terms of the laboratory and the testing that they've been doing for COVID-19, the work that we've been doing in pregnant women, uh, all around it's just been a buzz of activity, uh, something which we probably could have done without, uh, because it's really been uh, putting in unusually long hours. Uh, It's been highly stressful for most of the staff members in my research unit. We can only imagine, and especially with close to 15,000 deaths currently in South Africa, your observations and monitoring, with your observations and monitoring, do you think this number will still rise? Should we anticipate another wave or is this the permanent decline? Are we done with COVID from this point on? So it certainly is way too early to be doing any sort of post-mortem on this pandemic. I still think there's a fair amount of uh, disease that's going to manifest itself over the next few months. And I think when reflecting on the statistics that you mentioned for South Africa, we need to understand that what we really are describing as 15,000 deaths probably is a complete underestimate in terms of the number of people that have died. And similarly, when we talk about 650,000 people have been being infected in South Africa, that too is very much an underestimate. So there's some important information that was recently forthcoming from Cape Town as an example, uh, where they did what we call a testing for antibodies in pregnant women. And they showed that 40% of pregnant women that were delivering babies had been infected with COVID-19 already. And our experience in Soweto has been very similar. When we were doing our vaccine study and we're still doing the vaccine studies, is when people came forward to volunteer uh, to participate in the study, we needed to exclude up to 25% of people uh, simply because they were actively infected with the virus. They were actually asymptomatic. They didn't have any signs and symptoms suggestive of COVID-19, but they were infected with the virus. So firstly, my estimate is that in South Africa, the true number of people that have already been infected with the virus is at least seven to 10 times greater than the numbers that are reported. So we're probably looking at between four and a half million and six million people having been infected in South Africa. When it comes to the number of people that have died, uh, what we've reported, what we've recorded is 15,000 COVID-19 deaths. But when you look at what the South African Medical Research Council is reporting in terms of excess mortality from natural causes over and above what is expected for this time of the year, they're indicating that there's at least 45,000 excess deaths that have occurred. 
uh, since around about um, early May uh, 2020. When you put a different data together from the different uh, provinces, the Western Cape has the lowest differential in terms of excess mortality and COVID reported deaths. It's about a 1.5 fold difference. For other provinces, the difference is anything between five to six fold. And what that tells us in many of the other provinces using the Western Cape as a benchmark, they're very much underestimating the number of people that have died from COVID-19. So again, my estimate based on the South African Medical Research Council data is that the number of people that have died from COVID-19 uh, probably is in the region of 30 to 35,000 rather than 15,000. Uh, but like I said, uh, that's not the end of COVID-19 and it's not the end of the pandemic uh, because we, in, even though in the Western Cape in pregnant women, they're saying 40% of pregnant women might have been infected. Uh, for us, for this virus to become sort of more of a nuisance virus and for it to be what we call herd immunity, where we're able to succeed with this natural breakage in terms of the chain of transmission of the virus, you need to have about two thirds of the population that are infected. Uh, and I don't think we're anywhere close there. As people become less complacent with non-pharmaceutical interventions, as we start allowing for mass gatherings or as start, people start participating in mass gatherings, uh, we're probably going to start seeing another flare-up. But in all likelihood, the second wave of this outbreak, fortunately, in South Africa, would most likely be less severe than what we experienced this time around. A lot of information you shared there and a lot of mind-blowing information there, Prof. But firstly, with the underreporting and your estimates being much higher than what we're currently seeing, do you think something can be done about this? And should we be trying to get an honest number from the government or should the government be trying to get us a fully painted picture? Or are we fine with the numbers that we currently have? Right, so I don't think government is being dishonest about the numbers. Uh, government is reporting the numbers which they uh, saw, which are measured. So there's huge uh, capacity constraints in terms of being able to be expensive when it comes to the testing that's required to diagnose active cases of uh, COVID-19. And that is not unique to South Africa. It's a global phenomena. Even in the United States, as an example, where their testing rate is close on to, I think it was 250 per thousand of the population compared to South Africa's, uh, which is roughly about 62 per thousand of the population. Even in the United States, in the different states, they estimate that they're underestimating the number of people that have been infected anything between three to 12 fold. So it's not an issue that's unique to South Africa. And in fact, for many other African countries, they way worse off uh, than South Africa. South Africa does the most testing compared to the rest of the continent. Uh, like I mentioned, the rate of testing in South Africa is about 62 tests that are done for every thousand of the population. In many other African, sub-Saharan African countries, that is less than five per thousand of the population. So I don't think it's, uh, so the big issue is what additional value would there be in terms of quantifying the number of people that have been infected. And the answer that there is some value, because like I mentioned, one of the ballparks that we sort of wanting to understand is whether we sort of reaching a threshold where an adequate percentage of the population might have been infected, which results in herd immunity, which is a break in terms of the chain of transmission of the virus. Now, to do that, what you can do as an alternative uh, is to do testing for antibodies. So when a person is infected with a virus, their body uh, produces antibodies and those antibodies can be measured. But when we're measuring those antibodies, it doesn't mean 
that the person is infectious any longer. So it doesn't mean if someone is antibody positive that they need to go into 10 days of isolation. I think that I just want to emphasize that. But that sort of is a tool that we're able to use to quantify the percentage of people or the proportion of the population uh, in different areas that might have been infected. And that would assist us in terms of determining how we could expect for this virus to continue playing itself out over the next few months. And speaking of the next few months and South Africans in particular, do you think as a country and as a people, we have taken COVID-19 seriously and more with lockdown level two? Do you think that it is serious concern for South Africans currently? Yeah, so I have to say, I actually marvel at just how lucky we have been in South Africa. Uh, And we can go into hypothetical reasons why that might be. Uh, The South African citizens, unfortunately, were really not that compliant when it came to the non-pharmaceutical interventions during level two. You know, what I'm referring to as non-pharmaceutical interventions is the wearing of face masks, the avoiding of overcrowded settings, uh, hand hygiene, uh, ensuring that you're not in mass gatherings. As an example, during our level two, government allowed 100% occupancy of taxis, which is completely uh, in opposite direction of what you should be doing if you're wanting to contain the spread of the virus. Uh, But despite that, and despite uh, citizens unfortunately not having uh, been completely or the majority of a large percentage of population not having really paid much attention to the non-pharmaceutical interventions, That is what has led to what I've described in the Western Cape, where 40% of the population have been infected, or at least amongst pregnant women. And my suspicion is that when we do the same sort of studies in Soweto, in the inner city, we're probably going to see roughly the same, that 40% of the general population have been infected, which tells us that people really weren't uh, that diligent uh, about adhering to the non-pharmaceutical interventions, or the virus wouldn't have spread so fastly over such a short period of time. But that being said, For some reason, what's happened in South Africa is that that high number of people that have been infected hasn't actually translated into excessive amount of hospitalizations for COVID-19. And even though I mentioned up to 30,000 people might have died from COVID-19, that is still way short of what many modelers had predicted uh, as being the worst case scenario in South Africa. Their numbers were estimating anything up to about 75,000. In fact, the initial models went up to 350,000 people could have died from COVID-19. So we've come a fairly well in the context of what's happened. And what is driving that, there's a number of possible reasons for that. Uh, I don't want to bore you with the detail. A part of it might be related to the population demographics in terms of South Africa having a much younger age uh, sort of age group pyramid. Uh, than as an example in Europe. But I don't think that itself would explain what we observe because offsetting that sort of differences in terms of the age group demographics is a much higher prevalence of comorbidities such as hypertension, diabetes, obesity in South Africa, especially in the urban areas. Uh, and certainly those have been the major reasons why we've had people develop severe disease. So I don't think it's all about age alone. What might be happening in South Africa, and that is some of the work that my research unit is currently doing uh, to try to understand why this infection didn't really translate into excessive um, morbidity or severe morbidity, is whether people have had a high amount of exposure to what is known as a common cold coronavirus. And 
exposure to the common cold coronaviruses has been shown to be able to actually possibly induce uh, immunity, which might afford some level of cross-protection, not necessarily against infection with COVID-19, but at least against progression to severe disease after a person has been infected with the virus. So this is something that we're exploring currently to see whether for because of the living conditions in South Africa and possibly in other African countries, where there might be a high force of exposure to the common cold coronaviruses in the past few years. And consequently, that fortuitously resulted in us actually being better protected in developing severe COVID-19 compared to people in more affluent societies. A very interesting conversation there and hey, considering that many news outlets overseas in the West are now analyzing how Africa has been has been able to come out looking rather better than what they had spec than it, they had expected. Now we know the monitoring and screenings have gone down. They are not as done as as vigorously as they were before. What could the reason for that change be? And could it be that people are aware, are more aware of COVID-19 and they simply don't care anymore to get the positive testing? I think it's possibly a combination of uh, factors. Uh, you correctly state that our numbers have been coming down. I think recently we've been reporting an average of about 2,500 new cases compared to close to 12 to 14,000 cases per day at the peak of the outbreak. Uh, and in tandem with that, what's happened is that there's been roughly about one-third decline in terms of the number of tests that have been conducted. Uh, now, why is there a decrease in terms of the number of tests that have been conducted? And again, there's probably a number of reasons for that, uh, including possibly that people have less, uh, fewer people are symptomatic. So fewer people are coming forward for testing. But as you mentioned as well, uh, I think people might be sort of going into that zone where they've come to almost start living with the virus and with COVID-19, and they're not as uh, sort of mentally stressed to want to get tested as soon as possible, as soon as the first cough uh, appears. But in addition to that, there's also been a change in terms of the testing strategy uh, in government. Uh, and remember, in the private sector, people need to pay for this test. It costs up to 1,200 rand for a single test. So it's not something that is uh, cheap to get done uh, just randomly. So the changes in terms of government strategy, uh, as an example, previously they were focused on testing people in the communities and that's fortunately and correctly so that has now fallen to the wayside. And the reason why I say so is that there's very limited reason for people that are otherwise healthy to be tested if you're not going to act upon those tests. So testing in the community, uh, testing at the university as an example uh, of students, that is only of value if you're going to be acting on that. And when I'm talking of acting on it, what I'm referring to is that those individuals need to go into isolation. In addition to that, you need to trace all of their close contacts, uh, any close contacts from three days before they became symptomatic up to about, up to the point when they actually go into isolation. So on average, that turns out into roughly about 100 to 120 close contacts for every person that tests positive. Now you can imagine, even if there's only 2,500 people testing positive now, per day, multiply the 2,500 by 100, and you can see the number of people that you would need to go about running around to, to identify as close contacts and put them into isolation, or put them into quarantine. 
So for all intents and purposes, that is not pragmatic, uh, and we don't have the resources, and we would never be able to get to 75% of the closed contacts. So that makes community testing somewhat redundant, and the focus of testing needs to be uh, where it's going to make a difference. And where it really makes a difference is for those individuals that are being hospitalized, uh, for healthcare workers, knowing their status is extremely important, uh, or if there's sort of a sudden cluster of cases that occurs because of people having attended the mass gathering. Uh, under those circumstances, there might be some rationality in terms of doing the testing. The other place in the community, perhaps, which is an exception, are places uh, of, of frail care and old age centers. Uh, so there we're wanting to get know at the very early stage if anyone is infected so we can remove them because they obviously pose a risk to other highly vulnerable people in that immediate environment. Now, Prof, switching gears, how is VITS doing with the coronavirus vaccines, especially considering vaccines typically require years of research and testing before reaching the clinic, but scientists around the world are racing to produce a safe and effective vaccine by next year. How are we doing in that race? So we're very much involved in the thick of things uh, in terms of the clinical development uh, agenda for the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, currently, we're actually doing two studies in South Africa, both which are being led by uh, VIDA, which is my research unit, the Vaccines and Infectious Diseases Analytical Research Unit at Wits. Uh, the one vaccine that we're looking at is a vaccine that was developed by uh, the Jenner Institute at the University of Oxford, and another vaccine is a biotech company uh, from the United States. So in the first vaccine study, uh, we pretty much uh, nearing completion of enrollment of the volunteers. So we are wanting to enroll roughly about 2,000 volunteers, and we're nearing that mark. But now, so the way these vaccine studies are conducted is that when we have volunteers and when they're eligible to participate, they are randomly allocated to one of two groups. Half of them will receive a vaccine and the other half will receive placebo. And neither the volunteers nor the investigators, except for the pharmacists and the statistician, would know who has received what. And then we need to follow up those individuals until at least about 42 of them develop COVID-19 uh, before we're able to undertake an analysis which will uh, tell us whether the vaccine protects against COVID-19 or not. So that's the way those vaccine studies work. So like I said, although we've complete, nearing completion of enrollment into the first study, uh, we're still nowhere close to getting 42 participants that have developed COVID-19. And it's really difficult. Initially, I thought as an example that we would, by November, we would have an answer from our vaccine study. That was at a time when we were projecting a certain trajectory for this COVID-19 wave, uh, which didn't uh, materialize uh, in terms of the manner that was projected for it to occur. In fact, uh, what's happened is that the pandemic, as I've said, or at least this wave of the outbreak has subsided much sooner, which is good for South Africa, much sooner than what most people expected. But what that eventually, unfortunately, lends itself to from a vaccine perspective is that it will probably take us longer uh, before 42 participants uh, develop COVID-19 for us to be able to do that sort of scientific uh, analysis as to whether the vaccine protects against COVID-19. Uh, for the other vaccine study, which is using a diff very different sort of technology and construct uh, for vaccine development using more of a traditional approach, where we look at a protein of a specific, a specific protein of the virus uh, and try to use that as a vaccine target. 
For that study, we're still at a relatively early stage in terms of enrollment. So right now, I think we've just enrolled about 10% of the participants. We're wanting to enroll up to about 3,000 participants. So that study has still got a few weeks to go uh, before we complete enrollment. But the same thing would apply to that study, is that after completing the enrollment of the participants, volunteers, we then still need to continue following them up until we get up to about 50 cases of COVID-19 in that particular study uh, before we're able to do an analysis as to whether the vaccine protects against COVID-19 or not. So in terms of timelines, it's really difficult to predict. It all depends on how this virus circulates and what happens in the next few months in relation to when we might be able to get an answer, at least in South Africa, as to whether the vaccine works against COVID-19 or not. In other countries, uh, where they're now starting to see flare-up of cases again, uh, especially in, the, in Europe, in the United States, in Brazil, they also got vaccine studies that are currently underway. And especially for the Northern Hemisphere, where they're heading into a winter season and where there seems to be a fair amount of virus circulation taking place, it might well be that they're still able to get an answer uh, as to whether the vaccines protect against COVID-19 during the course of this year. Prof, around these vaccines that you've both mentioned from the United States and the United Kingdom, there was some outcry about why are they being tested on the African continent and on Africans. What is your response to such a take? And do you think it even holds merit? Yeah, so unfortunately, this holds uh, zero merit. And in fact, it shows the naivety of people uh, that make those sort of claims. So just to put it, put it into context, uh, in the year 2018, as an example, there were close to about 250,000 clinical trials that were being conducted, of which about 7,500 were being conducted on the African continent. Uh, the, the legacy of clinical trials is less than 5% of all clinical trials that are done, are actually done on the African continent. And that lends itself to a huge amount of disadvantages for Africa, because what happens is that many of these uh, clinical new interventions become available in other settings, but they delayed in terms of the introduction into Africa, into low middle income countries, because we don't know how these interventions will work, or these interventions might be too expensive, or governments might not have the political will to introduce those interventions. So without knowledge, you're pretty much in the dark in terms of what value specific interventions might have. And the reason we do studies in Africa is because the legacy of vaccines, as an example, shows that one vaccine that works well in one setting might not necessarily work the same in another setting. Uh, we've got examples of vaccines which show close on to 90% efficacy protection in a high-income country and then shows as little as 35% protection in an African country. So understanding how these vaccines work in your own context is absolutely essential if you want to make an informed decision as to whether you're wanting to introduce those interventions into your into your locality. Now, when it came to COVID-19 vaccines, right now there's about 29 COVID-19 vaccines that are in clinical trials, 29. And many of these vaccines have got multiple studies that are being done. So right now, my I think last time I looked at the data, there's about 75 to 80 clinical trials that are being done on COVID-19 vaccines throughout the world. And out of those 80, two are being done in Africa. So if you imagine that Africans are being used as guinea pigs, I think it's a very misinformed decision where two out of 80 studies are being done on African continent. And the only reason why these studies are being done in South Africa is not because we had a rush of 
uh, pharmaceutical companies to come to South Africa for these studies to be done. On the contrary, had I not gone out to persuade these companies and the University of Oxford to do the study in South Africa at this early stage, there simply wouldn't have been any sort of appetite on the part of pharmaceutical companies to come and do the study in South Africa or in any other African country. Because the harsh reality is that what drives pharma is profits. And they wanting their products to first to be uh, evaluated, licensed, and introduced in countries that are going to buy their, their products at a premium price. So we need to get a reality check in terms of how the world actually works if we believe that we're doing COVID-19 vaccine studies in Africa and Africans are being used as guinea pigs. Like I said, unfortunately, uh, there's nothing further from the truth uh, than that sort of uh, misconception. Definitely some interesting points coming out of there. Now, switching gears, there was mass excitement around a Russian vaccine that has been finished everything and was now ready, I think, to an extent to be consumed. What was your take on the Russian vaccine? And do you think that it's truly ready? Yeah, so the Russian vaccine didn't finish everything. It rather finished very little. Uh, so when we do these vaccine studies, after it's been evaluated in what we call preclinical studies, including in animal models, then it goes into human trials. And with the human trials, it goes just sort of a stepwise approach, starts off with phase one, which usually involves less than 100 individuals. Uh, and for that, you're just trying to find out what is the best a dosage of the vaccine, and you're trying to see if there's any severe adverse events, severe reaction to the vaccine. And then it goes into phase two, and in phase two, you start deciding on a selected dose, you evaluate that selected dose, and you sort of a bit more broad in terms of who you include in those clinical trials. And then ultimately, you go into phase three. Uh, phase two usually involves less than a thousand participants. And then in phase three, you start going into tens of thousands of participants. Uh, so that, and with the phase three, that is sort of the final uh, evaluation of the vaccine, both in terms of its safety, as well as whether it protects against the illness that you target in COVID-19. Now, the Russian vaccine was so-called licensed by the Russians after it had undertaken the equivalent of a phase one study. Uh, if all the other vaccine manufacturers, uh, the people that have got vaccines that are in clinical development, if all of them use the same threshold to license a vaccine, uh, then the problem would be sorted out by now. Because by now, in that case, we would have close on to 20 vaccines at the license rather than one vaccine. So certainly what the Russians have done is extremely unusual. In fact, if you ask me, it's highly irresponsible because it's got potential for having repercussions, not just about around public confidence of COVID-19 vaccines, but public confidence around vaccines in general. Uh, you do not go about licensing a vaccine and starting start introducing it into the general population uh, without having adequate monitoring in place and without any knowledge, literally any knowledge, as to whether the vaccine would actually protect against COVID-19 as well as whether the vaccine is actually safe. That's not the way science works. Uh, and that would, be the, that would be analogous as an example to what we faced a few months ago at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic when I think it was the president of Madagascar that came up with this herbal, uh, uh, herbal medication of his, uh, and he was dispensing it in Coke bottles throughout uh, Madagascar, claiming it was a cure for COVID-19. Uh, well, that's pretty much what, what you could sort of uh, compare in terms of Sputnik V vaccine and 
where it stands in terms of the scientific rigor that was used to evaluate whether it actually is something that is safe and efficacious in protecting against COVID-19. And that brings a very interesting question for me personally, considering on the show we have had traditional healers speaking about the role traditional medicine can play in the pandemic. Do you think this space in looking for a vaccine and in possible remedies for traditional medicine to play a role? Sure, without any question. There's definitely a role for anyone that's got the potential of being able to develop an intervention to play a role. But whoever that is, uh, they, we can't have shortcuts for different uh, people and for different sort of interventions. Uh, if you want to be scientific in terms of your analysis, and if you want to ensure that the intervention that you're introducing does not cause harm, and first and foremost, it's about not causing harm. Uh, and then it's about it actually delivering on what uh, you indicate that it's able to do, that is protect against illness or cure the illness. It needs to go through proper scientific evaluation. So that is what science is all about. Uh, it's not about uh, trying to be accommodating to one sphere of uh, society uh, at the expense of the community at the end of the day. So yes, there might, well be, there might be well be herbs that actually do have some effect against the virus. Uh, we don't know what that is, but if there are those sort of possibilities, then those sort of interventions, again, needs to be put through the correct uh, scientific testing to determine whether what it is being advocated to do actually does materialize in the real world. So the scientific scrutiny is something that we can't make an exception for, irrespective of who the origins are of a particular intervention. And lastly, Prof Mahdi, we're moving to summer now. Do you think this can affect amount of COVID cases that are present? And will this also limit the spread because of the warmer weather? Yes, I think that's a really good question. And I've always been uh, thinking the same, that there might be well be a climatic association in terms of the circulation of SARS coronavirus uh, and eventually what it ends up causing. And this wouldn't be unique to SARS coronavirus. Remember with seasonal influenza virus, uh, that virus usually comes to South Africa around about May, June, July, uh, with uh, another virus known as respiratory syncytial virus, also highly associated with climatic factors. So I think this, and with, with the common cold coronaviruses as well, there is, at least for two of the four, there is a climatic association in terms of its circulation. So I think it might real well be that SARS-CoV-2 is able to survive for a longer period of time and able to transmit much more efficiently in cooler months of the year. And what it means for South Africa is that it might well be that what we're also seeing materialize right now is partly related to this sort of high percentage of people that have been infected. So it causes the virus to become less efficient in terms of its transmission dynamics, but also the warming of the weather might be, contrib might be contributing uh, to fewer people becoming infected, to the virus being less able to survive for longer periods of time, Obviously, with warmer weather, people are also less likely to be indoors most of the time, so they're in more open, ventilated areas. So there's a number of factors that can contribute uh, to, can, that could explain why there might be a climatic association in terms of uh, the virus circulation as in any efficiency of transmission. Uh, but that basically means that it might all be that come February, March next year, 
uh, that's when we start seeing another uptick in terms of circulation of the virus. And that is, might not just be because of the climatic issues, but also because what we can expect to happen, because we're all humans, is that during the December period, we can be less assured that people are going to be parting, there are going to be mass gatherings, people are not going to be adhering to non-pharmaceutical interventions. And that itself could obviously lend itself to increased transmission of the virus between people and another outbreak. And that was Prof Mahdi, who is leading the coronavirus vaccine trials here in South Africa, sharing with us how they are progressing. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. Or streams via www.varfm.co.za.